Welcome to the Faith Effects Podcast, where life and faith meet. Bernie, when I was, I think it was 12 years old, my mom brought home the four albums set of Jesus Christ Superstar. My mind is clear now. And I had not yet seen the movie. It come out around the same time. Norman Jewison. Uh, partly, I wasn't allowed to see it because it was uh, maybe a little, a little risque. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wasn't a Christian kid, and I didn't know until years later that uh, you know good Christian people were were protesting that movie, <laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar. But I, I I listened over and over to the soundtrack, and I could probably you know amaze you right now by you know pick a song and I could probably sing it beginning to end not well but I could remember lyrically the, the music. why should I want to know oh sorry yeah yeah no right don't let um, me don't let me tempt you uh and then uh, a year or so later I got to see the movie and Ted Neely this uh very blue-eyed sort of dark blonde-haired or dirty blonde-haired kid from Texas plays Jesus and it had such an impact on uh, how I saw Jesus. I wasn't a Christian at this time, but for the next uh, at least seven, eight years, that's my image of Jesus. And then when I began to read the scripture, uh, it started to kind of overturn, even though there's no physical description of Jesus in the scriptures, I, I began to sense yeah, probably Jesus wasn't a good-looking blue-eyed gay from from Texas. Uh, there was probably he bore the resemblance of somebody who grew up where he did in the Middle East. When you think about your own kind of how you're thinking about either Christ or any biblical story, got shaped by movies or art. Yeah, you know, I I. Th- I, uh, I was sent to Sunday school as a little kid, even though my family didn't go regularly. And I really enjoyed it, strangely enough, because uh, I didn't discover till later you weren't supposed to. Uh, but I, I loved it. And uh, I, had, I had great Sunday school teachers. Uh, and uh, every once in a while, they'd give you a little gift uh, to take home. And one of the gifts we would get, and I got a couple of them, would be arch books, uh, which would be books just telling the stories uh, about Jesus. Uh, and so, you know, the one I remember most vividly is uh, where Jesus calms the storm. Uh, and, uh, for me, you know, that was, that was one of the earliest pictures of Jesus, uh, that I remember. And, uh, yeah, his, his, his skin tone, uh, was like mine. Uh, he seemed to be taller, uh, than everybody else in the book, which would sort of be like my my folk, where we're kind of tall people. Uh, and uh, even when I wasn't going to Sunday school, I you know my early religious training was was influenced by media. You know, uh, now I'm going really old school and low school here. Uh, Davy and Goliath, this claymation uh, program from back when you and I were kids, uh, had a profound influence on me. But it was this. Uh, this Caucasian suburban upper middle class middle class family, uh, and uh, who learned all the principles and uh, of of good living, and uh, uh, and for me that that really shaped my my early pictures of of both who Jesus was and and who the church was. 
Santa now. I've made some cookies and tea for you. Hey, come back here. Yeah, and it's one of the major points that our guest today, Dr. Antipas Harris, draws out. He's written a very fine book called Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? And he is far uh, wide-ranging, the conversation we have with Dr. Harris. But one of them is, how did these depictions that uh, but basically kind of uh, create all these stories in the minds of, of not just uh, Caucasians, but people of color, it creates this impression that Jesus was white and Moses was white, <laughs> for mm-hmm. all the characters, when the opposite is actually true, that about 90, 95% of people in scripture were people of color. And so this is a very interesting interview and also very hopeful. Did, uh, did, do, you, do you find it a hopeful conversation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you were to tell somebody who we had invited and, and what we were going to talk about, uh, you would think that he would come out with a, you know, a bl- blistering and only blistering critique of the church. Uh, but while he does that, to a degree at least anyway, he doesn't end there. Uh, he has hope, uh, hope for the black church, hope for the white church, and really, as he'll say at one point, hope for God's church. Uh, and and uh, why don't you join us and follow along and listen to Mark and I talk with Dr. Antipas Harris on Faith Effects. guest is Dr. Adipas Harris. Uh, he's the president and dean of Jake's Divinity School, and he's also associate pastor at the Potter's House, all in Dallas, Texas, uh, where the senior pastor is the very well-known Bishop T.D. Jakes. Now, Harris is, uh, Mr. Dr. Harris, Antipas, I guess, uh, has served in pastoral ministry for nearly 30 years, though by looking at him, you would never know it. Uh, He was the founding pastor of the Urban Renewal Center in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, where he served on the pastoral staff of First Presbyterian Church. Now, over the past 15 years, uh, he's served on the faculties at several institutions uh, of higher learning, including Sacred Heart University, New York Theological Seminary, uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, Portland Seminary, Vanguard University, and Regent University, where he was a tenured associate professor, and where he and I first met and worked together. And Antipas, that's an impressive CV. And of course, you and Bernie also knew each other personally, but uh, we're just meeting for the first time. I'm curious, what would the people who know you best want me and others to know about you? Wow. I think, well, first of all, thank you, Bernie and Mark, for having me on your on your show uh, it's a delight to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation. Uh, what others would want you to know about me probably is that I am a workaholic <laughs> and um, that uh, I'm a people person. I love people. Well, and that's, uh, for what I know of Antipas from the time we spent together a few years ago, that is, that is all true uh, for good or ill. Absolutely. 
Uh, and part of being a workaholic means you write books and not just one. You've, you've had a few come out and uh, one of I, one of which I had the uh, the honor of uh, uh, writing a little blurb for, and I thank you for that. It was probably the most widely circulated writing I'd ever had. Uh, but uh, your more recent book, now uh, about a year old, uh, is called "Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? How the Bible is Good News for People of Color," and that's come out with University Press. Now. These answers, you know, to the questions I'm about to ask you might seem pretty obvious, but especially now, why did you write it and, and why write it now? Great question. Uh, well, I wrote the book because uh, I was teaching at university and I was um, lecturing on a class on leadership and a 22 year old, youngest person in the master's class, um, master's, probably master's program, but definitely the class. Uh, raised his hand, and I thought he was going to ask a question about the focus of the class that day, and he didn't. He asked the question, what do you say to your friends when they're leaving the church and saying that Christianity is just a white man's religion? And I said, excuse me? <laughs> First of all, I was taken aback because it's like, whoa, that was a random thought. It had nothing to do with what we're talking about today, about leadership. Uh, and then, and he said it again, and I saw the sincerity in his eyes. Now, I know sometimes students ask questions that kind of derail the class because they haven't read and they don't want to talk about what we're really talking about today. So they find a good reason to bring up a whole different conversation. Amen. And people know when I lecture, I tend to feel the pulse of the class. And if, if people go in one direction or the other, I would, you know, I would, I don't just stick to my lecture. I usually try to tailor it for the question, but usually the question is something related to the topic of class. Uh, but this was so far out that um, I asked him to repeat the question and he did. And I saw the sincerity in his eyes and I thought, tell me more about why you're asking the question. Like, you know, where is this question coming from? And he began to unpack that a lot of his friends who grew up in the church are looking at the, the, the social climate in, the, in America, and they're very concerned that Christian, Christians don't seem to care about social issues and the things that they care about is the way he would have phrased it. And he said, uh, you know, in politics and seemed like the church is not don't care about um, the shooting of black men on the street and so forth. And the class just seemed the rest of the class just seemed to resonate with the whole the discussion, white and black students. And um, I let them have the conversation for the rest of the class, pretty much. And they all tended to agree that there was this sort of groundswell of concern in uh, in the streets, as it were. And uh, so I thought to myself, I'm not as woke as I thought I was, because I remember this question being a question that Malcolm X asked during civil rights movement. And so it seemed a little anachronistic to my ears. It seemed like something that used to be talked about. And the way the class was talking about this was, no, this is, people could care less what Malcolm X said, they're talking about it right now. <laughs> and I thought, wow. So I started to sort of organically asking some of my, my, my buddies um, who um, on this, you know, from the streets who are not really in the, into high education, you know, is this a real question? And they were, yeah, man, this is a big thing. And I started learning about black Hebrew Israelites, the nation of Islam, a science of consciousness, expanded consciousness. 
And I became overwhelmed and started to investigating why the question. So the book is more weighted toward why the question than the answer to the question, because I think Christians become defensive to a question like that. And instead of understanding where the question is coming from. about how the student initially prompted and provoked your interest in this, but your book, I, I finished it this morning, it oozes personal conviction. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I, if I, I were to describe it, it begins kind of in this almost exploratory way in these various movements that young people are being attracted to, but you rise to a, a sort of a prophetic kind of pitch uh, by by uh, about midway through it sort of seems to me it tips toward that and and it just gets kind of more and more not strident there's not a, a word of stridency in fact i want to come back later how much graciousness you write with and you explore this with but the 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 conviction that i'm feeling from you personally and that you want to actually awaken within the church is palpable so could you talk a little bit about how this topic that initially was sort of seem anachronistic, as you say, it has become to you personally so meaningful. Yes, um, partly because um, within particularly the urban sectors of society, uh, there is an uprise of uh, cynicism toward faith. Uh, and it is alongside the concern that the church doesn't seem to care about what people deal with in everyday life. Church is more concerned about how you believe rather than how you experience life. And I find that crucial for the life of faith in the future of the church, um, that we pay attention to, what, to places and spaces and opportunities where we often overlook, and the metaphor comes to mind that I didn't deal with in the book, is the the, the parable of Jesus telling um, the lawyer that there was a man who was going down to Jericho and fell among thieves. He was stripped, beaten, left half dead, and, and there was a priest that went by and passed on the other side, a Levi went by and passed on the other side, and there was a Samaritan that came to attend to the need in the everyday life. Um, and. I started to seeing that the church and the people of faith may be imaging the priest and the Levite more than we're imaging the Samaritan. Uh, and so the question becomes from the place of the man who is um, affected on the road, is this the white man's religion? Because it certainly is not for me, right? Uh, and I and I just, it, you know, and it spilled over to black men being killed in the street, to concerns about poverty and homelessness and issues of, of women and gender and concerns about uh, how people are affected in the crevices of society and the pressure and the oppression that people are experiencing. Um, and so for me, it became not only an intellectual enterprise or exploration, but it was a personal desire 
to see how do I relate to people outside of the walls of the church? And in what ways am I perpetuating or adding to this vision of the white man's religion? And in what ways can I use my intellectual resources, my ministry resources to raise this discussion? On the one hand, to make the church aware of the conversations in the street. And on the other hand, to provide a bit of a apologia, if you will, apologetic um, of the faith that can help people on the street rethink what the faith might should be about. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and, and so much to think about and such a rich heritage uh, that in, you know, I think that if you if you've studied history, if you studied theology, if you studied scripture, uh, the question becomes more puzzling to you about how you could land there. But of course, if you look at the sociology, you, you certainly see uh, how you could. I've wondered about this. We're catching. I'm going to catch you with this question a little bit out of the blue. Uh, but my own uh, my own work uh, in theology was with a guy named Thomas Oden. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the last projects that Tom Oden, uh, this uh, uh, Yale-trained uh, Caucasian uh, theologian worked on, uh, was uh, actually chasing down the, the African roots of the Christian faith. Uh, worked with guys like uh, La Manzana and others uh, in, in doing that. Uh, you know, so I'm going to ask a, a really sort of selfish and personal question here. Uh, does that does that that deep rootedness of the Christian faith in in African thought and in Africa itself carry carry any kind of credence today? Uh, is is that of much value, or or are we to look someplace else? And and, and if so, maybe where? Uh, great question. And I didn't know you studied with Tom Oden. Um, what an extraordinary mind. Um, and Lamansana is someone I studied with also at Yale. So um, bless both of them and their souls as they sleep with their eternal father. Um, to your question specifically, I think part of the challenge is theological education has not bridged a lot of its intellectual resources to the everyday life. We became a critique of higher education as we become over the years, sort of this um, armchair discourse among scholars. And a lot of the, the I mean, if you're, if you're a PhD in medicine, um, you, want, you want what the scholars discover to bridge to the medical doctors so that the patients can benefit from it. But in, in, in religious studies, theological education, it becomes, you know, this ivy tower discourse uh, and a lot of the content, rich content, doesn't get to the church, doesn't get to the streets. So that's a critique. Uh, and I think in many ways, that's how we have become uh, irrelevant to the life of faith at one level as theologians. Uh, and I think part of my passion is to bridge it to the streets. To your question specifically, Black Hebrew Israelites, um, Nation of Islam, they tend to try to bring their version of intellectual resources to the streets. So young people of color who are looking for identity, they help them believe 
that their roots are actually in the Hebrew history. <laughs> so they talk about Mizraim and, and they have all the, these, you know, ideas floating around that are cerebral, maybe incorrect, right? But at least they're bringing what they believe to be deep theological, philosophical, and historical resources to the guys on the street while the churches are busy building churches and having church and making people feel good. And uh, so I think that we have a lot on the dusty shelves of theological um, library that needs to bring to bear to people's questions about identity um, and meaning in life and the meaning of joy, the meaning of connectedness with God, corrective history. We have all that. Tom Olden, Lamanzana, you, we've done stuff that we share with each other, but those resources just don't bring to bear on the street. And that's why I wrote the book the way I did, fully aware that I was not bringing, I was not sounding like a scholar. I, I hope I sound like an educated person, but I was trying not to use too big of terms and tried to speak in a way that ordinary person could pick it up and get responsible academic research, but in a way that they can actually understand it. Because I think that's what we need now more than anything. My read of your book, Anthropus, is that the fundamental critique of your book is this failure of the, the evangelical church, particularly to draw upon our heritage, to draw upon our biblical and theological resources, especially as those relate to addressing systemic uh, injustices and, and racism, uh, that we're either ignorant of those resources, or in some cases you suggest that we're, um, we're willfully ignoring them. I'm gonna quote from page 45, of is Christianity the white man's religion. The church cannot change what it does not admit. Mm -hmm. Importantly, adherents of the faith that have participated in the problem, and the problem is the injustices, the racism, the, the adherents of the faith that have participated in the problem in fact possessed the internal norms to heal the very problem that we have created. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about those internal norms and why do you think the church isn't drawing upon them? Yeah, the internal norms of love, compassion, uh, and um, kindness, uh, justice is part of the internal norms of the gospel, the liberation of the oppressed. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring liberation to those who have been captive. Um, and that latter part in that in Luke chapter 4, 18, where he says, and to and to preach acceptable year or the year of Jubilee, which is a year of reset, so that people are equal again. Um, so the internal norms of the gospel and origin of Jesus' ministry drew from the reserve, the prophetic reservoir about resetting so people can be at equal on an equal playing field. Yet we've used the religion or the faith or the tradition that Jesus started to do just the opposite, um, which is quite, quite mind boggling when you think about it. 
Um, so you have this disconnect between what Christianity has done and what the origins of the faith was all about. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and and and, and, and I, clearly, I just, I think you're you're so right. Uh, and and uh, and again, so timely is this book. You know, one of the things uh, that I know the folks from my perspective, where I land, where I came from, what I look like, uh, need to think about is something that comes up in your book uh, time and again. And, and so I'm wondering if you could talk to us about the history of artistic and even cinematic por- portraits of Jesus, uh, what he's painted to look like, uh, and, and uh, maybe even speculate on why Western culture has turned a dusky-skinned, dark-haired, first-century Palestinian Jew into a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan postal poster boy? And, and, and even what are the consequences of that? Well, one of the things that I said in the book, um, or tried to indicate, was that I do believe that the Jesus of faith uh, translates to people's cultural identity and experiences. So I, I affirm a white Jesus in that way. I affirm a black Jesus in that way and an Asian Jesus. So, you know, uh, a Jesus that identifies with women in their suffering and men in their, you know, those pieces. This Jesus of faith is translatable. The problem here is when the white Jesus took upon the European epistemological sort of um, um, top-down approach, right? Um, where let me tell you about what Jesus is and that Jesus happened to be white and not black. Now we got an issue because now you've turned to Jesus, uh, you've turned Jesus in some sort of um, um, uh, affirmation of whiteness to the exclusion of blackness to reinforce the uh, the white supremacy that was building and mounting uh, around Europe and then actually created America. I mean, it, it was that that mindset that they brought to America um, to build this American exceptionalism. It was not for black people, it was for the Jesus people. And if Jesus is white, we're white, so we are the people. Um, which I think became, you know, we haven't talked about in those days, there was not, and nowadays people talk about, you know, theology and the arts, right? We study that. But in those days, there was this embodied theology in the art, theology in cinema. Theology was everything. So when they created, you know, the, 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 the narrative of Jesus in the early 1900s and it went to big screen, Jesus was white and the Egyptians were black and the guy who carried the cross of Christ Simon of Carini was black. So then black people are, are bad people, like the Egyptians who enslaved the Israelites. They were white, by the way. Moses was white, you know, um, in the cinema is what I mean. And so you have these Egyptians, that uh, the brown people who were bad people. And then if you look at the Passion of the Christ, you see this brown-skinned guy who actually is, for all intents and purposes, a slave. And this slave has uh carries the cross because that's what slaves do and jesus is white by the way so the slave has to carry the the white jesus's cross 
So subconsciously, it reinforces these images and theological framework that doubles down that whiteness is superior to blackness. So much so that growing up, even when I, we, we all think in pictures, right? We don't think in words, we think in pictures. And so when I think Moses, oh, the guy from the Ten Commandments, the white guy with the big beard, I can't think outside of that, right? Uh, I think of Simon O'Carini, oh, the, the slave who carried the cross. So it, it's this sort of subconscious framework of the story of what the Bible is about. So much so that a bishop called me and said, Antipas, um, was Obed-Edom in the Bible black? Somebody told me Obed-Edom was black. I said, well, the problem is in the question, because what I hear you, the question presupposes that maybe there is a good black guy in the midst of the sea of all the white people. So if I say that Obed-Edom is black, oh, wow. So he's the one who had the Ark of the Covenant. You know, that's the one who carried the Ark of, you know, uh, who David brought the Ark of the Covenant. So we got a good black guy we can we can hang our hat on. I said, but, but the reality is everybody in the Bible, for the most part, 95% of the Bible were people of color. And they said, did, you know, did Moses marry a black woman because God was upset with uh, with with Aaron and Miriam because they made fun of him for marrying the Ethiopian, the black woman? I said, so now you're you're imposing a binary worldview on the Hebrew scriptures, which which cloud your ability to know what what the problem really is. It really wasn't black and white, but that's the way the binary way you see the world. So these are the hermeneutic lens, hermeneutical lenses through which you're reading the text. So, but what if I tell you Moses was also a person of color? And so the issue wasn't white and black. It was, we can draw some comparisons, but you see, so what happens is the hermeneutical lens through which American uh, academy, theological academy, framed so that pastors were taught was this binary black and white world. And so even black pastors had, many of them had to rethink how the theologically this means something different, but subconsciously we were still seeing the world black and white, the Bible, the biblical world is black and white. Uh, so I wanted to unmask that. And and I think I'm saying more than you, the answer to your question. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think the answer is somewhere in there. <laughs> it's a good answer, Anthropus. In fact, as you're talking, I'm realizing that I didn't become a Christian until I was in my 20s. And when I was a young teenager, the movie that got me intrigued about Jesus was Jesus Christ Superstar. And a Norman Jewison film, he cast a Texan boy, pretty Texan boy by the name of Ted Neely, very, very white blue-eyed, uh, kind of a dusky blonde hair uh, as Jesus. And he cast Carl Anderson, a black man, as Judas. And I remember uh, this was my first exposure to any sort of portrait of Jesus as a kid and the kind of impact that had on me with no other resources to draw upon. And then when I began to read scripture, I started to realize, oh my goodness, the story is a little more you know, interesting or compli complicated than that.
I have a couple of questions. The first is that you critique the tendency among evangelical theologians and pastors to want to change the phrase social justice to phrases like biblical justice or kingdom justice. And you say, no, let's keep with the phrase social justice. Explain that. First of all, I think um, it's um, what happens in evangelical uh, Christianity is we want to change the subject. Um, If we're talking about, you know, police killings of black people, we want to talk about black on black crime. That's important, but don't change the subject. This is, you know what I'm saying? So what happens here with this social justice, kingdom justice, we want to change the discussion. And part of this has to do with my theological formula which is practice theory practice rather than theory practice. Um, It starts with live reality. When people say, let's do biblical justice, they wanna start with a biblical passage that they can just apply to everyday life, which misses the point. Because inevitably when doing that, we ignore the fact that we actually are starting with practice. Because it's hard to, to get a biblical truth to the exclusion of any kind of relevance to everyday life. So you really kind of um, um, organically start with an everyday life, but it's usually the everyday life of a person who has not lived in that particular context. Does that make sense? So social justice forces one to pay attention to the social reality of others who often are experiencing some kind of oppression than the person who is doing, than the folks who are having these conversations are, are having. And so what I want to do is force or highly encourage ever so slightly twist the evangelicals thought pattern to really take serious that we have a social problem that needs to be responded to with Christian resources rather than running to Christian resources and saying, if you just do this, then life will be different. Um, there was a when there was a shooting in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Keith Scott, uh, I remember Franklin Graham came out and said, "Well, precious African American men need to just cooperate with the police." <laughs> and I was asked to come on national TV and respond to to what he said. And I said, well, first of all, people who don't know these contexts need to probably stop giving their commentary because you're presupposing that people are just stupid. But when you start with their experience and understand where they are, then you won't have this other careless, you know, seemingly obvious comment that is disconnected from, that's why I said, don't rush to the answer to the question of is Christianity white man's religion? Understand where the question is coming from. And that's what I think social justice forces us to do. Biblical justice tries to evade the social reality. That's really good. In my preaching classes, I asked students, what is the good news? And I get these heavily loaded theological answers. And I say, well, first of all, it's a, it's a response to bad news. 
So what's the bad news? <laughs> and the gospel is speaking some some good word, some some word of hope to that bad news. Whatever is it hunger? Is it racism? What's the bad news? And the the gospel will say something. What one question before I, I let Bernie back back in? You your your critique of the evangelical church, as I said at the introduction, is is rises kind of to a prophetic pitch there in, in places it's almost blistering it's never strident but man you you make us feel it and yet you also clearly love the church put that together for us yeah i really love the church i believe in the church i think that i wouldn't be where i am today without the church i i stand i believe that many theologians who are attending to social justice often become absolutely um so upset with the church that they're almost willing to just leave the church and critique from the outside but i want to critique from the inside because i think there is more in the inherent nature of the church that jesus intended than what we're experiencing so i want to see the church become better um at the same time i do believe that we're going to lose the future of this of uh we're going to we've lost some of the discussions, let's face it. Um, it's hard to talk about homosexuality without a strong heterosexual theology. Um, so we, 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 we don't have much to say there. It is what it is. But I believe that we have an opportunity here, an opportunity to be faithful to a God of love and compassion and to redeem the imaging of the church in the world such that the future of the church will be in a revival mode where the church will become relevant again. And I, I really believe that the future revival is in the social justice space. What does God have to do with the mayhem and decadence that people experience in everyday life? Let me follow up with your own formula. Go from practice to, to theory, theology to practice. Land us back in practice here. How can the church and perhaps even, you know, how can the evangelical church, and then if you dare, how can the white evangelical church actually participate in re-imaging the faith? Great question. Uh, I think it's going to take all of us. And I believe that we need to deconstruct the idea of a black church and deconstruct the idea of the evangelical church as it has become known. And we need to think about the church. And I think we have to give up those sort of sacred cows that sort of formulated uh, who we are. I think Martin Luther King Jr. was after it when he used the, the language of beloved community. Of all the things we celebrate about King, not enough attention has been given to this notion of beloved community. He's really critiquing the white church and the black church. He said the greatest hour of segregation on Sunday morning. He's talking about the black church too. Uh, and what he's saying there is we don't need the black church as we have experienced it. And we don't need the white church as we have experienced. We need a beloved community where we can be faithful to the call of a God who affirms all of us equally and create a new reality. You know, I'll evoke um, Josiah Royce, who was not um, particularly a Christian um, philosopher, but he believed in an idea of a 
a community, a community where people can maintain their distinctions and, and their distinction actually feed into the meaning of the whole. And so I believe that the church has, I think that's what Jesus was after. Paul even said it like this. He said, my prayer for you, the church of Philippians, Philippians 1, he said, my prayer for you is that your love abounds in knowledge and deeper insight. He connects love with knowledge and deeper insight because in order for me to love you, I need to understand you. I have a knowledge of you. So the way the church can participate is moving beyond the walls of the church and seeking a better understanding of the people we're called to serve. And that's why I try to get at the end of the book where I said we need to have tentacles outside of the church where we actually are not just going out to share tracks. That's top down. That's theology practice. But how can we seek to abound in knowledge? and refrain from the impulse of critique and just seek to understand because people, and, and it's become a cliche, but it is true. People want to know what you know when they know that you care. And they know that you care when you care to understand them. I mean, they may have crazy ideas, but I just want to, I just want to seek to understand where you are. And I don't think the church has done a good job with listening. And that's as a good old Pentecostal, that's the gift of Pentecost. It's not speaking languages that people can't understand, but it's the hearing and understanding the voice of the other. In hindsight, we were young, falling head over. As we wind up, Antipas, this has been a great interview. Um, and again, so appreciate your book. It's Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? by Antipas Harris, Dr. Antipas Harris. Um, I often, as we wrap up, envision the person listening to this. Might be a pastor, she's driving down the road and even pulls over just to kind of listen to the final moments of it. Uh, might be some guy cleaning out his budgie cage. Um, somebody running down the road with earbuds listening to this. And I, I want you to envision the people listening to this, what final parting word would you give them that is either prophetic or exhortative or an admonishment around they're 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 already convinced I want in. I want to be part of some new story that's going to happen within the church. What would you say to that person? I want to say that they have a role to play and it's not to stand on the sidelines and see what happens, but to participate in the game. Get in get um bring their gifts their talents to the to the conversation um how can you be a part of hearing and understanding the voice of the other how can you participate not uh, you know we talk about the church as an institution but it really is christians it's individual people who believe um and they they're asking the question how can i make the world a better place start by meeting and engaging and engaging people who you don't understand you know my biggest my most profound experience theologically was when i was chaplain in the prisons because i grew up in a fundamentalist context in the rural south live by the sword die by the sword you know just very you know bible toting um you know going to heaven enjoying the trip you know jesus is coming back soon you get better get on you know better get your act together kind of a person and then I was a chaplain in the prisons 
998 women. And I remember going in every day, every Monday, and listening to the stories. And the more I listened, it transformed my theology. I became, you know, I used to be supportive of the death penalty until I actually met somebody who was on death row and heard that story. And so then my theology changed. Our perspectives start to changing once we engage conversation and seek to understand the voice of the other. And I think we're afraid of each other because we're afraid we might lose something. We gain something by doing that. So I spent time with homeless people, people in prisons, people who are uneducated because I've got so many degrees that I understand people with the you know formal education. I want to understand people who, who don't have formal education, how I can have build bridges with people. And that's what every person who's listening right now can do. Find someone you don't know, you know, get to know a Muslim. Somebody asked, why does Antipas spend so much time with Muslims and Jews? I said, because I didn't meet a Muslim and a Jew. I met a human being. You know, I don't get to know people because of what they believe. There is a fundamental principle that we have to attend to. Here is another human being. I want to get to know them. People love dogs because they spend time with dogs. And all of a sudden, they become human beings' best friend because they they get to know the dog and the dog gets to know them and they fall in love with, with the pet. Why can't we do that among human beings? Uh, you know, I, I look back, was it six, seven years ago when, when we spent some time together and I was on sabbatical and you've, you've actually just reminded me of two great things from that sabbatical. One was getting to know you and uh, your faculty colleagues in the beginning and the other, and you might be the only person who will get this is every Monday night I'd uh, get in my car and I'd drive into Newark or into uh, Norfolk uh, and I'd go to Park Place Methodist Church and I would I would serve whatever it was we were serving that night. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I actually uh, I usually wanted to get out from behind the table and collect the garbage uh, because it was in clearing the tables and busting the tables that I got to know the people. Yep. Uh, and uh, these people who, uh, who had it rough and had it tough and who were very different than me, it was great. Hey, really quickly, uh, just uh, before we close up here, books on sale at all the regular places they can find books on sale, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Those are, those are all up there, and it's a great book. Mark and I both recommend it. But if people want to follow you online or virtually or somehow, how can they go about that? Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at dr. A-N-T-I-P-A-S. That's at Dr. Antipas. That's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can follow me on LinkedIn as well. Great. You're <laughs> everywhere. You're everywhere. Everywhere. Great. <laughs> well, Antipas, it's been great to have you here. Great to see you again. Mark, uh, we need to get together again sometime soon, buddy. I haven't seen you face-to-face for a long, long time. Uh, but it's been great to be together here on Faith FaithFX. This episode of Faith Effects was produced for Ambrose University in Calgary, Alberta by Anthony Hoisington, that's me, at Old Bear Records in Batavia, New York.